Let's take our Bibles and open to Matthew 5. We're going to be looking at uh, three verses there, four verses there, verses 13 through 16. As we continue to work our way through the book of Matthew, gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, just as you're turning there at the elder meeting this week, uh, we discussed the pace of going through Matthew. And the elders have uh, encouraged me to, at least in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, kind of slow down and go through each section with a little bit more uh, precision and detail. So uh, in the coming weeks, you can look at your Bible and the titles that are above each paragraph, and that's basically where we're going each week. In Stephen Galloway's 2008 novel, The Cellist of Sarajevo, It tells the fictional story of a real-life cellist whose name was Vedran Smalovic. In one scene in the novel, a bomb explodes outside a bakery near where Smalovic lived, and it kills 22 people. He rushes to the scene and is overcome with grief at the carnage that he sees there. So he goes back home, puts on his black tux, grabs his cello, and returns to this, the crater, he pulls up a fire-scorched chair and begins to play his cello in the middle of the crater. For the next 22 days, one for each victim, he decides that he's going to challenge the ugliness of that war with his only weapon, the beauty of music. Smelovic continues to unleash the beauty of this music in graveyards, at funerals, in the rubble, in the streets, and in the sniper-infested streets themselves. He becomes known as the cellist of Sarajevo. Although completely vulnerable out in the streets, he never gets shot. His music created an oasis of hope for the people of Sarajevo amid the horror of that war. In our text today, Jesus is calling us as believers to do something very similar to what Smelovic did. That is, go out into danger. He calls us to be an oasis in this fallen world. He calls us to share the hope of the gospel to a hopeless and decaying world. He challenges us to live with two very powerful metaphors. Look with me at chapter 5, starting in verse 13. There we read, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Please pray with me. 
Holy Spirit, we ask you to move us through your words spoken through this jar of clay. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began to look at these three challenges that face believers. The first is contained in the last beatitude there. Blessed are the persecuted. We will face persecution. That is a challenge given to each and every believer. The second challenge is contained in the the Beatitudes as a whole. Six of the eight have these future blessings that that are promised to them, communicating the challenge of waiting, if you remember last week. And the last challenge all believers face is living our faith out boldly within this decaying world. To live our faith out loud, if you will, in a growing secular society. And this is the challenge of being in the world, the challenge of just being in the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, having realized what we are in the Beatitudes, we must now go on to consider what we must be. So Jesus is calling us here to be salt and light. These verses, actually, are the application to the Beatitudes. This is Jesus' application. We are to be salt and light. And those, those two metaphors are very powerful. And, and what Jesus is conveying in general is you are to have an effect on society. And there are two effects that he is talking about here. The first is a salty effect. You're to have a salty effect on society. Be salt. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the world. What does salt do? It has many different properties. It has many different applications. I mean, salt has, has a taste. It brings a spice to things that it touches. Uh, salt provokes thirst. Uh, salt was used in, in the sacrificial system. All these, probably Jesus had, had shades of meaning and application, but, but when the people uh, 2,000 years ago heard him say, you are the salt of the earth, pretty much they had one thing in mind, and that is preservative. Salt was used as a preservative. That's the metaphor that, the overarching metaphor that Jesus intended here. Refrigeration, of course, was non existent 2,000 years ago. And how people preserved things was that they would, they would rub salt onto the meat. They would salt the meat and it would preserve it. The qualities of salt retard the decay of the meat. This preserving power of salt was made possible for the missionary David Livingston, his body to be shipped back from Africa to be buried in Westminster Abbey. Having died in Africa, Livingston's servant buried his heart in in Africa, where his heart was. But his body was packed in salt and shipped back for an honorary burial in Westminster Abbey. Salt retards decay. Salt is a preservative, first and foremost. And that is what Jesus is saying. We are to be in the world. We are to be a preservative in the world. You are the salt of the world. You are to be a preservative. 
We are to be little grains of salt sprinkled all around this globe, this terrestrial ball, as one hymn writer put it. And we are to retard the decay and the deterioration of society. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, what does you are the salt of the earth imply? It clearly implies the rottenness of the earth. The tendency to pollute and to become foul and offensive, he writes. That is what the Bible says about the world. It is fallen. It is sinful. It is bad. Its tendency is evil and wars. It is like meat which has a tendency to putrefy and become polluted. It is like something which can only be kept wholesome by means of a preservative or an antiseptic. And so Jesus sends his beatitudinal people, us, out into the world as an antiseptic, as a preservative. So when we live out the gospel, and when we speak the gospel, because those are the two ways that we can shine forth the gospel, we, we live it out and we speak it, we are actually helping to preserve the world. This is something we have to remember, brothers and sisters. We have to keep this in mind. When we're told that we're being judgmental, we have to keep in mind, no, we're being a preservative. We have to remind ourselves when people get angry with us because they think we're too exclusive. No, we're, we're actually rubbing salt into their bodies. We're preserving them. Theologian Donald Bloch wrote this, We are not called to be the honey of the world, but the salt of the earth. Salt stings on an open wound, but it also saves one from gangrene. We have to remember that. The world has gangrene. The people that we are sharing the gospel with have spiritual gangrene. And when we tell them the gospel, it is not meant to be judgmental or hurtful, how they take it sometimes, but caring, loving, a preserving act on our part. And when we do share the gospel, and, and we have to remember this, the gospel is axiomatic. The gospel is axiomatic. The gospel is 100% true. No matter what people think, what we are saying is 100% true. So when we tell people that they are sinners in need of forgiveness, that is 100% true. When we tell people that they are lost and that they need to be found, that is 100% true. When we say that mankind is not friends with God, but enemies... That is 100% true. When we say that people are not naturally on their way to heaven, but actually they're following the road to destruction and to hell, that is 100% true. And when you tell people these things, you are being salt. You are being an antiseptic. You are being a preservative. You are being kind, actually, 
You're actually being loving, not judgmental. Now, can you say those things in an unloving, vindictive way? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I can point to times in my life, and I'm sure you can point to times in your life, when you have said those things, and your heart was really poking them in the eye with a sharp stick. Yes, you can say those things in an unloving way. But when you combine those truths with a sincere love, when you combine those two things, you're being salt. You're being salt. Salt is a combination of actually two elements, sodium and chloride, chlorine, sodium and chlorine. Sodium is an extremely active element found naturally only in combined forms. Sodium always links itself with something else. Chlorine, on the other hand, is a poisonous gas and gives the bleach its odor. But when they combine, those two separate elements combine, we have common table salt. Love and truth can be like sodium and chlorine. Love without truth is flighty, sometimes blind, weak, malleable. Love can many times make us combine with some heretical doctrines even. On the other hand, truth by itself can be offensive and sometimes hurtful, can it? Truth spoken without love can turn people away from Christ. But Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth. Like sodium and chlorine were to combine love and truth. And when an individual does that, or when a church does that, it turns out to be an powerful ministry. When you have truth coupled with sincere love, you have a powerful ministry. And that ministry is what we've been given. It's what we've been given here. That's what Jesus is saying. You are the salt of the earth. This ministry is detailed out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to listen closely to, to how Paul is describing us. He writes, This salvation from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal through us, he writes. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who had no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear the four descriptors of us? No less than four times we are being called salt right here. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, one. He entrusted us with that message. Two, we are ambassadors for Christ. Three, 
And I think the most impactful one here is when he says God is making his appeal through us. That is amazing. And what is that appeal? Be reconciled to God through Christ. That's the appeal. Be reconciled to God through Christ. That's why Christ came, to offer mankind this amazing reconciliation by living his sinful, sinless life. He, he lived a life that was bereft of sin, earning righteousness, earning heaven. And then he willingly went and died a substitutionary death on the cross for us. He, he didn't have to walk that, that Via Della Rosa for us, but he did. And verse 521 says it so eloquently here. So eloquently. Hide this word in your hearts, people. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's that glorious transaction that happens when you place your trust in Christ. His perfect righteousness is put into your account and your penalty and payment for sin is placed in his. Jesus willingly died in your place. He took the full punishment of God's wrath for you in his body. That's what 1 Peter tells us. And if you believe that Jesus did that and rose from the dead, you will be saved. Put it another way, you will be preserved. Isn't that wonderful? And as we tell people that, as we tell people that gospel, you're salting them, you're preserving them. You're rubbing salt into their decaying body. You're helping to preserve them eternally through you. God will make this appeal to your family and to your friends and to your classmates. But there's a challenge that Jesus mentions here that we all face, isn't it? If you look at the text closely, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The challenge we all face, brothers and sisters, is the challenge of dilution. Of dilution. The challenge, Jesus says, is salt losing its taste. And the only way salt ever loses any taste is by dilution. If you have a perfectly balanced soup, and you pour a gallon of water into that, and you taste it again, It's not so good anymore, is it? It's so diluted, you don't even want to eat it. And that's the challenge we all face in our faith. See, instead of us salting the world, what happens is the world starts diluting us. It begins to corrupt us. The world's values, if if you will, begin to seep into us. And we become diluted. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, writes this, If the only visible difference between Christians and secular people 
is that we go to church on Sunday and give more regularly. Why would they want to join us? He goes on to say, if we divorce, alienate our children, tell lies, make dirty deals, laugh at dirty jokes like everyone else, why not play golf on Sunday and take exotic vacations? I agree with that. If, that, if, if we're no different from the world, why join us? So the challenge for us is to resist this insipid leech of the world into our lives. If you listen to the public reading of Scripture that we did earlier, that's what Peter is challenging us to resist. Dear friends, he says, I urge you, listen to Peter's language, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. The world's ethics war against our soul. And it's constantly enticing us to lose our saltiness. Constantly. It whispers, come on. Your children can play sports on Sunday mornings. Don't, don't withhold that from your kids. Come on, laugh at that, that dirty joke on the, on, the, on the golf course. You, you want to be part of this foursome next week, don't you? Come on, retell that juicy bit of gossip. You know you want to. Come on, continue keeping up with the Joneses in all ways. We have to resist this leeching of the world's values into our soul. We have to constantly ask ourselves, is there any difference between our approach to materialism in the world's? Is there any distinction between our approach to pleasure and the world's? Is our compassion any different than the world's? Another way to ask this, just, just simply and broadly from a high level, is in your life, are there more imports than exports? What about your reaction to this whole COVID-19 virus? Is it any different than the world's? Is there any distinction between how you are acting, talking, reacting than the world's? We have a chance right now to be particularly salty in the world. The world entices us right now to fear, doesn't it? Fear is the overarching leech that we have to war against. A fear so great that, that it can paralyze you. A fear maybe that our lives will never be the same again. A fear that it consumes you. Does that fear consume your thought life? Does it consume your, your speech? How much of your speech in the last five weeks, ten weeks, has been consumed by COVID-19. Brothers and sisters, fear is one of the most powerful things. 
It directs and commands and it guides our lives. That's why we're told again and again and again in Scripture, what? Take that fear and properly place it on God, right? Because God will use that fear to guide you well. If you place that fear anywhere else, it will misdirect you. So in contrast to the world's fear as Christians, we know that God actually ordained this time for us. We know that he is sovereign over all this. We know that God is in control, not Dr. Fauci. And being salty means that we tell people this. Being salty actually means we remind ourselves that a lot, don't we? As Christians, we know that this world has fallen, that this world is actually in decay, in entropy. We know that this world is broken, and it's not how God created it to be. And you know what being salty is like? Being salty is like telling people that. Being salty is, is reminding yourself that. We as Christians know that this life is not all there is. We know that Jesus has overcome this broken world. We know that trusting in what Jesus did on the cross means eternal life. And do you know what being salty means? It means telling people that. Not succumbing to the fear, but giving them the hope. And you know what being salty means? It means reminding yourself of that too. That's preaching the gospel to yourself. It means allowing these truths to change our fear into trust and hope. It means salting the people around us with these truths. It means coming out of the salt shaker and into the world, if you will. And that's what Jesus challenges us to do next through the metaphor of light. R.C. Sproul writes, When the settlers came to this country and were met by Native Americans, a war broke out. The Indians were subdued. They were allowed to live in America, but only under restrictions. They were relegated to reservations, which isolated them from the mainstream of cultural life. He goes on to say, I fear that this is similar to the lot of the Christian church in this day. We're allowed to exist as long as we stay on our reservation. If we are salt like the disciples were salt, he says, if we venture out into the public square, as Paul did in the early church, we would experience much of the same that he did. But we are being taught to keep the salt in the salt shaker where it will do no harm. Brothers and sisters, the challenge that we face here is to stay in the salt shaker. That's where we feel most comfortable, don't we? Jesus calls us to be salt and to take that salt out into the world, take, take ourselves out into the world, to rub that salt into the secular society and the people that we run into. And Jesus calls us light, and he calls us into the public square. Look with me again at verses 14 through 16. Jesus is saying, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. 
Here Jesus is so crystal clear once again. It's very uh, simple to exegete this, isn't it? We're to be visible, right? We're to be out there. We're to be in the public square. We're to be ubiquitous in the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus stood up in the middle of a crowd during the Feast of Tabernacles and he shouted, I am the light of the world. And then he goes on to explain that. And he now transfers that in this very verse to us. You are the light of the world. And he scattered us, scattered us, scatters us around the world in order to bring light into a spiritually dark place. And we do that by being visible. It's interesting how Jesus tells us to be visible here. If you look with me in verse 16, it says, In this same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're to be visible, at least here, by what we do. We're to be visible by what we do. The two Greek words that are used in Scripture for good works are kalos and agathos. Agathos is, is translated good works, but it means good quality of work. So I was sitting on my, on my new deck that the Gomers built this week, and I was studying this, and this was in the back of my mind, and I was thinking, well, this, this deck is a, is a agathos type of deck. It's a, it's a good quality deck. It's solid. It's square. But the Greek word used here is kalos, which means attractiveness or beauty. See, you see, Jesus wants our light to shine through, through attractive acts of goodness. John Stott, commenting on this verse, writes, Indeed, the primary meaning of works must be practical, visible deeds of compassion. It is when they see these, Jesus said, people will glorify God, for they embody the good news of his love which we proclaim. Without them, our gospel loses its credibility and its honor with God. So, we are light by serving meals and loving the people at the homeless shelter in Ellsworth. We're light by sharing the hope that we have within us to those who we bump into. We are light by being compassionate towards those in our community through our benevolence fund. We are light by taking some extra food or a bowl of soup over to an elderly shut-in. We are light when we take care of a single mother. In a recent book by Phil Cook and Jonathan Bach, he asks several significant questions that I think bear on us asking today. Why did the early church succeed where we are failing? How did they transform the Western world in a relatively short period of time. 
They did it because they did things that baffled the Romans. The early church didn't picket. They didn't boycott. They didn't gripe on what was going on in culture. They just did things that astonished the Romans. They took in their abandoned babies. They helped their sick and their wounded. They restored the dignity of slaves. They were willing to die for what they believed. After a while, their actions softened the hearts of the Romans that they wanted to know more about who these Christians are and the God that they serve. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. That's exactly what Jesus is saying will eventually happen if Southwest Harbor Congregational Church is consistent and constant in serving our community, a baffling them with our kindness. Sure, it might take a couple hundred years. You and I might not see. But our prayer is they will see the consistent good works of Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, of that body, and will someday glorify God who is in heaven. And the challenge we all face, Jesus tells us, is to keep that light shining, isn't it? That's what he's saying here. That's the challenge. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Our temptation, isn't it, is to hide our light. I mean, how many of your acquaintances, acquaintances, Know that you're a Christian. Our temptation is to hide our light. Lucy Swindoll in her book, Heart to Heart, wrote this. A friend of mine was caught in an elevator during a power failure. At first, there was a momentary panic and all seven people in the elevator started talking at once. My friend remembered then that he had a tiny flashlight in his pocket. He turned it on. And it was interesting, he said, the fear almost instantly dissipated. During the 45 minutes, they were stuck together in the elevator. They told jokes, they laughed, and they sang. Matthew 5.14 says that we are that flashlight. As light, we dissipate fear. We bring relief. We lift spirits. But we don't have to be big to be effective. We don't have to be a spotlight to be effective. We just have to be turned on. We just have to be on. Now, it could be interpreted here in view of the context of what we're saying. Don't hide your light on a hill. That the coronavirus mandates that prohibit us from gathering is actually turning off our light. You could read this and go, hold it. Aren't we turning off our light? The elders understand this. And we want to be sensitive and wise in how and when we want to gather. For God commands us to gather. Let's be clear on that. God commands us to gather. Jesus in Matthew 18 said, when you gather. Not if you gather. When you gather. Hebrews 10.25 says, listen, do not forsake the gathering as some have been tempted to do. 
Yet here we sit. Literally ten people in the sanctuary, live streaming, not gathering. I want to take a moment and explain why we're not gathering. And maybe give, give a little, shed a little light on why we're not turning off our light. First, we have to live under the authority that God has placed over us. That's, that's crystal clear in Romans 13. God has placed authority above us for our good to benefit us. And part of what the government is doing here is protecting us. And so we have to, we have to respect and honor that authority. It's exactly what it says in verse 6 of Romans 13. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so we see no bad intentions by the government here. Secondly, these mandates are not directed at church. So we live underneath the authority well. Secondly, these, these mandates are not directed at the church. The church is not being singled out for persecution, brothers and sisters. Let's be clear on that. The government has not directed these mandates for the churches not to gather specifically. If they were allowed to have rock concerts at the Cross Coliseum up in Bangor and yet still prohibited us from gathering, we would be having a very different conversation. But they're not. Third, what the government is asking us to do, brothers and sisters, is actually reasonable. It's reasonable. It's not unreasonable. The mandates are temporary. The spirit, as I said, of the mandates are good for our protection. They're trying to stop the, the spread of a dangerous virus. Now, as time goes on, the reasonableness might be challenged. But the elders for right now, we believe that the, the bar for civil disobedience is actually very high where this is concerned. And fourth, the elders feel that to fully gather would not be a good witness to our community. It wouldn't be a good witness. Many in our community are fearful. Many in our community do live in fear. Not all. But it would seem callous to those and uncaring and perhaps even unloving if they were to see the parking lot full the streets lined with cars, as it usually is, and us packed in here, 100 plus. It might seem that Southwest Harbor Congregational Church doesn't care whether COVID-19 blooms here. So, for those reasons, we continue to obey the mandates. Now, that said, there are a lot of people, myself included, Longing to gather. Sorry. And the abstinence is torture. Longing to be together. Singing songs. Embracing. Loving each other. Hearing the word. I'm one of you. 
But in God's providence, he has us in a waiting pattern. And waiting is hard. I want to close by reminding us what Elder Aaron Hansen wrote to you yesterday. I think it's wise. He wrote, We may have difficulty waiting right now. We may want to subvert the government mandates because we've waited long enough. Perhaps we're growing tired of the loneliness and do not believe the promise that God's presence can sustain us. Do not give up hope. The Lord is always working. Since the garden, mankind has been wanting, waiting for God to join them in the flesh and millennia of faithful perished while fervently waiting on the Lord. Like the lepers of Samaria in 2 Kings 7, God used the estranged shepherds of Judah to herald in the good news of the, to the world on the first Christmas morning. His promises are secure. He will not forsake us. Though our circumstances could never change, we must wait on the Lord. To whom else can we turn? Please pray with me. Father God, we long to be together. We ask you to shorten this time so that we can do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.